Hey, it's Imogen from SquarePeg. On today's episode, we're talking to Katie May. And there are three things that I think you need to know about Katie before we start. The first was this story that Paul Bassett told me about Katie from the time that he worked with her at Seek. Opposite Seek's office on St Kilda Road used to be this tiny shop run by an elderly woman called Bobo. And I hear Paul describe it, this shop was a mess. The food selection was stale and a bit gross, and the items in the store all seemed old and mismatched and crusty. And so for the most part, the team at Seek basically ignored it as a lunch option, preferring to walk down St Kilda Road and find something a bit fresher. Until one day, when Katie was time poor and needed a snack, and found herself at Bobo's place, choosing some food from the counter. Paul said it was no surprise that Katie struck up a conversation with Bobo and that it was also no surprise that she subsequently spent the next few weekends with her husband doing up Bobo's shop and connecting her to suppliers that could provide better selling products. But the thing that cracked Paul up was that from this moment on, the team had to basically hide where they ate anywhere other than Bobo's. And even he describes having to check that Katie couldn't see him from her window when he left to get lunch, lest she find you later with a non-Bobo salt sushi roll. And when I asked Paul why this story came to mind, he said that it summed up so much of Katie's big-hearted, can-do attitude, that she was just a force of nature. The second thing that you should know is that you probably shouldn't speed this podcast up too much. When I printed Katie's transcript off to make this episode, it was about three times longer than anyone else's because she fits about three times more words into every second. And the third thing is that there really are very few people like her in the Australian tech ecosystem. She's a founder and an operator who has stewarded multiple tech businesses to success as large as billions of dollars. But she lives in Austin where she grew up, and so her profile isn't as big here as it should be. And today we're remedying that. Meet Katie. I was an early employee and thinking back on it, it's funny because I remember when I got there, my first title was marketing director. I had precisely one employee, so I'm not sure exactly what I was directing, but it seemed fancy at the time. But, you know, I had worked with Paul's brother, Andrew, at Booz Allen and Hamilton, which was like a strategy consulting firm. And he kind of called, asked me to come talk to them. We had lunch. We probably had one more meeting. Maybe it was two. And then shortly thereafter, I seemed to be resigning from Booz Allen and, uh, and joining Seek. So, you know, it was super interesting times. And I'm so glad Andrew came back for me. I always think that, like, you know, he left a year before me and he came back for me and how different my life would have been if I'd never moved to a startup. I was in such a different type of role. So very grateful. And though Katie was excited about joining a startup, she had mostly loved her experience as a consultant. And I asked what particularly had been keeping her entertained. Oh, I'm not sure if I was entertained. I was certainly overwhelmed and uh, (laughs) felt like the dumbest person in the room a lot. But, you know, it was really good strategy work. I would say my sort of passion at the time was consumer products. And I think that's one of the reasons they brought me in, but they just didn't win a lot of work in that area. So instead, I was doing a lot of energy work and I knew about zero in terms of energy. So, you know, I went and worked at Interjex in Queensland. I did some work for BP. I did some work for BHP. So it was sort of like big companies answering big questions. And I was fairly young in my career, but super smart people, really interesting problems to solve. You know, you're in rooms with CEOs. So I remember my face used to go purple every time I had to present. So I learned to present. I learned a lot about problem solving and and recognizing what you could do with data, et cetera. So it was good work, but it's not like something I wanted to do for 10 years. I think when Andrew called, I was like, what is it? Whatever it is, I'm coming. (laughs) 
The scrappy startup that Katie stepped into was very different from the major organisation she had been working in. Seek was founded just a few months before Katie joined, and the problem they were solving was to change the way people advertised and found jobs, moving them from newspapers to online. We actually interviewed Paul Bassett, one of the founders of Seek, on an earlier episode of the podcast, so you can go there to hear more of that story. But back to Katie. Matt Rockman, another of the co-founders at Seek, had already completed some foundational marketing projects on the brand and strategy. But for the most part, it was a blank canvas. I was like, wow, you've already sort of lined up some of the best creatives in Australia. So getting back to marketing, it's not like I had 10 years experience. You know, I had a few years experience. (laughs) I think all of us were very trusting of the others. You know, all of us were sort of just smart people trying to figure it out. So I think me with marketing, it was almost nice not to be challenged all the time by others because it's not like someone else knew more than I did. So, you know, I think I sort of bumbled along, figured it out. And then my job, it started in marketing and there was a lot of brand work. There was market research, there was PR, there was just like traditional marketing. Andrew covered more of the digital marketing, thank goodness, because I really didn't understand that when I first got there, it was so new. But eventually I ended up starting an inside sales team. I took on the product team. And so it was a non-traditional, I guess, marketing role in the sense that if you said you'll do something, they were like, great, just grab it, do it. And so it wasn't like, you know, you're so like, here's your box. Why don't you go stand within it and make sure that you don't come outside the bounds? It was like, hey, anything you can tackle and move forward, just have a go at it. This can-do attitude seems to have been infectious. Many former Seek staff talk about the joy in just getting on with solving the problems as they arose, which was lucky because the challenges just kept coming. I think that everyone that started at Seek in the early days would probably say the same thing in terms of first mover advantage is real. And so there's so many advantages, but oh my goodness, in the first year or two, there's so many disadvantages. I mean, you are literally educating a market. You're solving a problem that they don't know they have. And so some of the challenges were just external. It's not that Seek wasn't a great idea. No matter what time you launch something like that, that's disruptive. The selling and the marketing side of that is so difficult because people won't take your calls. They're not interested in what you're selling. Everything's working great in the newspaper. I would just say some of the challenges are just, hey, when you're the first, (laughs) that education process, you do a lot of the work for other people just to kind of slide in. And now you've created a category, if you will, and they just kind of get to come in with a new brand. But I think the other challenges, and this exists in every startup and certainly in all of the ones I've participated in, is just the pace the pace that you're moving. And there wasn't a lot of senior people. In fact, there just wasn't a lot of people, but you would see things that needed to be done. And it was like, well, just get them done. Just move forward. Just solve the problem. But solving the problem is never as simple as it sounds, especially when you don't have access to the range and depth of software that's readily available to us now. In the early days of Seek, when the product was still pretty nascent, Katie says that they mostly had to hack things together and their greatest weapon was Microsoft Excel. So Excel was our friend and we needed a way to get job ads into Seek and because these recruiters that were your best customer because they concentrated and aggregated a lot of different jobs, but they're very used to on Friday, we send them all to the newspaper using a tool that we've always used. And then on Saturday, some have they miraculously come out in print. That's what they wanted. They wanted the process that they already used. Well, we didn't have that process. And so for them, say they had 30 jobs or 300, or in some instances you had large recruiters and they might have thousands of jobs. They didn't want to do it every day, despite the fact that the internet is obviously 24 seven. They still wanted to follow this Friday thing. And we just didn't have that, but we did have Excel. 
And so I remember one of the people in customer service had a boyfriend. He didn't even work at C and he knew how to build macros in Excel. And I was like, really? Could he come in? And so I remember staying at Seek with him until, you know, God knows what time in the morning, building out this thing called Seek Express, which was essentially a glorified Excel spreadsheet. And I mean, within days, there were hundreds of recruiters using this terrible thing. I think we used it for years. So I think the challenge was sort of like, there was always so much to do. You didn't necessarily have the people on board with the expertise to do it, but you had the freedom. And it was really like, hey, that's better than nothing type mentality. Today, I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just so immature, but it worked. In Paul's episode, we spent a long time discussing the practicalities of building a high-performance culture, and I was curious to hear Katie's take on what it was like to work in a startup that went on to be a $7 billion success. Paul, Matt, and Andrew, they were fun. I mean, they were in their early 30s. They were not looking to build an office like what they came from. You know, Paul came from ABL. He was a lawyer. You know, Andrew came from Booz. You know, it was really like buttoned up firms. And so there, it was like, I mean, it was games every day, practical jokes. And when Katie says practical jokes, she means pretty elaborate jokes that typically began by sneaking onto each other's computers to send prank emails to the entire company. And, you know, if you'd been there for a while, you barely even read them. But for the new people, they're all following these instructions. Oh, my gosh, Paul's had, you know, an aneurysm, whatever it would be. And I do do remember the balls flying around Andrew. And and this was one where, you know, it's the jokes that, you know, go too far or whatever. Andrew threw this ball into Matt's office and it hit his coffee cup and hit the coffee cup into the computer. And those days you didn't just get another computer from Amazon delivered. Like the computer got sent away and then you waited a week. So Matt had no computer. (laughs) Andrew was definitely a little sheepish, you know, the few days after that. But I would say that the culture at Seek was built very deliberately. You know, it was sort of like they wanted to have this family vibe. I mean, we had epic parties. Um, They would pick these amazing venues. So it was sort of like that work hard, play hard culture. But those three guys, they knew everyone. They knew everyone's names. They walked the floors. So it was just sort of, it was a very different place that I definitely tried to emulate and the next two businesses that I was part of, but it was a lot of fun. As much as we worked hard, I mean, there was, there were a lot of laughs. Going into work was not like a chore. We get a little taste of this at Square Peg because Paul has a habit of hiring people who enjoy a practical joke just as much as he does. So we give as good as we get. But when I asked Katie why the early leadership team put such an emphasis on building a collegiate environment, the answer seemed kind of obvious. I think that, you know, they were smart enough to realize if people are having fun at work and they're really enjoying it, your turnover is going to go down because, you know, people tend to leave because of their bosses and stay because of their friends at Seek. I mean, the relationships and the friendships, there are still a Facebook group that seems to ping me every once in a while. People that haven't been there in 10 years still catch up, you know? So it's sort of like, I do think that it is an advantage. If you can create a culture like that, I mean, no one wanted to leave. I do remember when Seek redid their offices and I'd already left, but I went back to visit and they had slides going floor to floor. And I thought, yep, (laughs) they're still carrying on. (laughs) By the time Katie left, the company was thriving. She'd managed the product, marketing and inside sales teams from inception to IPO and was enjoying the perception shift that she and her colleagues were experiencing as a result of their hard work and success. 
the brand was just ubiquitous in the market. If you said you worked at Seek, people are like, oh, probably like today, if you work at Google or Facebook or somewhere, people are like, oh, wow, you must be something if you work there. So I would say the changes were instead of a scrappy startup, it was a bigger company that was profitable where when you made a sales call, you know, people picked up the phone, people wanted to talk to you. You know, it certainly wasn't easy because things never get easy because you're always challenging yourself to introduce the next new market or to go after a new segment or whatever it is, but it was certainly easier. During her time at Seek, Katie had also become a mum, and it was this experience that ultimately led to her founding her company, KidSpot. Yeah, so I'd come up with the idea for KidSpot a year before I left Seek, and it was really one of those born out of needs. You know, I was a young mum, I had two daughters, I was working obviously full-time at Seek, and I think at the time it was really one of them I needed to plan a birthday party for and one wanted to do gymnastics. And so it wasn't like today where you just Google it and just put in, you know, Armadale gymnastics and, you know, a few things close to you would come up. Well, that didn't exist back then because those people didn't have websites to have listings. So Google couldn't even index it. And so there was just this gap in the market. And so in those days, there was a great publication called Melvin's Child. It was distributed free, but it was at a chemist. Well, the chemist closed at six. Well, the chances of me getting off work, being able to get my kids, so I could never get there. And so it was so annoying to me that I knew what I wanted. And I guess I just saw, well, Seek solved this, you know, things that people were looking for, they put online and they made it really easy to search. And then they matched the people searching for the job with the people that had it. And I thought, you know, if that gymnastic studio, you know, could be listed in a directory, I could find it. And, you know, if that, you know, fairy, I want to hire for the party. So it was really similar to Seek. The idea was, could I take what was at the back of this magazine? Could we just put that online? And then, you know, these people could pay to advertise. And then obviously moms would come and search it and it'd be so much easier for everyone, et cetera. And so I went to Paul a year before I was planning to leave. And I also wanted to move back to the US. So I went to him and just said, hey, I don't know if, if I'm going to do this, but I just want to make sure you don't think there's any conflict. Like, do you feel like I have been thinking about this on your time? And how would you feel about it if I ever did it? He was like, go for it. And while the idea for KidSpot was slowly building in her mind, after so many years overseas, Austin seemed to be calling her home. And so feeling a touch conflicted about all of the possibilities she had in Australia, Katie chose to move to Austin, giving her notice at Seek while agreeing to stay for another year to manage a smooth transition to the incoming CMO. But it seemed fate stepped in, in the form of Irvin Rockman, Matt's dad and the chairman at Seek. It was, in fact, when I asked Irvin for the meeting, it was at my going away party. Paul put on a dinner for me and invited Irvin. And I asked him, we went out front to smoke a cigarette together or something. And I asked him if I could meet with him. I explained it. And Irvin had two young children with his wife, Lynn. And so he really understood. And, you know, he was, he was like, yeah, 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 I get it. The magazine, he may not have looked at it, but he was familiar with it. And he, of course, he took it home to his wife and she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone uses this magazine, you know, the back of it to, to book things. And so he really understood it. And he was like, well, I like it. And so he said, you know, come back the next day or whatever. And I was literally moving a week later. So I went back the next day and he goes, well, um, the thing you didn't tell me is how much money you need. And, you know, in all my wisdom, I said $250,000. And he said, great, I'll value the business at 500. And so I'll take 50% and I'll write you a check right now. Well, I was so excited about the 250. I just said, yes. So I literally in one meeting 
<laughs> I know whoever's listening to this, I'm going to come up with a complete moron, but there's things I learned at Seek, you know, how to be scrappy, how to be what I would call an operator that knows how to solve just about any problem. <laughs> but what I didn't understand was capital raising and dilution. So anyway, it all worked out in the end, but um, yeah, I think Urban might've got the better part of that deal, but you know, he was a great partner and it's not like he took 50% and rode off into the sunset and I did all the work. I might've been the operator doing the day-to-day, -day, you know, work on the floor, but he certainly was in the background, you know, lending his name and his support. So, you know, he, he was very valuable to the success of that business. But I, I, I did learn a lesson. With her seed capital raised and her feet firmly back on the ground in Austin, Katie was already making huge progress on KidSpot. The product was built and her initial team was hired, but things got off to a rocky start. I moved here, I guess, in like July of 2005, and then we launched in September. And so I flew back to Melbourne to launch and to ensure the salespeople were on the phones and things were working, et cetera. And I was there for about a week. And I would say within the third week, I started to get calls and emails from different people in the business and it just wasn't working for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, Irvin being Irvin was like, well, it looks like it's your problem to solve. You need to get on a plane. And so I, we started this thing where I would go back once a month. And so that worked until it didn't. And then Irvin's like, something about a farmer needs to be close to his fields. And what that meant was Katie was moving back to Melbourne. <laughs> so within a year and a half of moving to Austin, we moved our whole family back. We came back for six months and really got the traction that we needed to. From her time at Seek, Katie had really learned how to build a sales team. And this was crucial because KidSpot was going to need to do a lot of selling. Day one was, you know, I would say easy in the sense that it was exactly what I had sort of done at Seek. You know, I'd set up this inside sales team, which I'd never done inside sales. I definitely never made a cold call in my life. But, you know, I went to, there was a, there was a business in Melbourne called Salesforce, not the big Salesforce that we all know. It, it was people, they outsourced call centers to this company. So I went and, and met with the CEO of that business. His name was Kevin. I just said, hey, could I come back and sort of shadow, you know, just learn how this works. And so I did, and they were doing everything from Foxtel selling outbound subscription where, you know, there was just an auto dialer that every time someone hung up, that poor person that needed to make the next outbound cold call. So I sort of watched. And so setting up inside sales at Seek, it certainly wasn't immediately successful, but it ended up to be a very successful channel for small and medium-sized businesses. And so when it came to KidSpot, we were going to use the same model. We knew where to get the leads at the back of Melvin's child, Sydney's child, et cetera. So it wasn't hard to find leads. And we had four salespeople is what we initially hired. It was all like day one was sort of like, okay, let's make these calls. And it really, like I would say, making the calls and actually getting people to say, yes, I'll try it. It wasn't easy, but it wasn't impossible. What was impossible, which I should have learned better from Seek, is getting them to do it. So it was a self-serve model. So we'd call and we'd say, hey, and this is how mom searched today and let us t talk to you about this. And you could give stats and this, and they'd be like, huh, okay, I'll give it a try. Okay, well, listen, you know, let me take your credit card. I'll send you everything you need. It's a link. You can imagine how quickly you could just create an ad, put three images in, copy paste from your website or put, you know, I do parties, whatever. No one did it. So, so day one was easy in the sense that, hey, we can convince people that this is a different way to market their business and that it's important that they do it. What we couldn't do is get a small or medium sized business to actually do the work. So, you know, then the work started from there. But once we had all the moms coming to the website and all of a sudden we had 100,000 moms coming and the numbers were getting bigger, it's like, should we be doing more? And so we really started recognizing that we should be publishing content. These moms had questions that they needed answered to. So we really expanded the business and 
when we did that, you know, I brought on board other senior people. And so that allowed me to move back to Austin again. And so then I was with KidSpot for seven years and uh, I commuted to Melbourne every month for seven years. So it was a slog and I was in economy for the first five. So (laughs) anyway, it was definitely a slog, but I did achieve my dream. Despite the long haul flights and near constant jet lag, her vision for KidSpot had expanded dramatically from a simple directory into a publishing powerhouse, tapping into the power of community. KidSpot started as a directory. That business was probably only ever going to be a small business, but what we started to realize as we built out content that, you know, moms do have questions. And so if it's, how do I teach my child how to tie their shoes or how do I put together a sleep schedule? There's editors with deep expertise that can put together amazing content. But it's almost like, look, editors can provide the answers, but moms can provide both the connection and their experience. And so once we realized how powerful it was to put moms in touch with other moms, and our first community was pretty basic, and then we just kept evolving and building it, and we ended up launching something called KidSpot Social, where there were hundreds of thousands of moms participating on a daily basis, just asking questions, sharing, and sometimes it was just venting. I mean, they could talk about anything from a movie to their husband. But in many instances, people could just go search at night when they had a baby that wasn't sleeping or, you know, whether it was call it, whatever it was. I think community ended up very powerful from a offering perspective, but it also offered something just at the right time for brands in Australia. So brands were starting to realize that, hey, it's not enough to put up a billboard. You have to connect. And so we were doing things that brands were very interested in doing across all different parts of the website. And, um, you know, the big publishers like News Corp and Fairfax, and they just weren't doing that. They were doing display ads. And so KidSpot was out selling half a million dollar deals to one client for one campaign for back to school where they are over there trying to sell a bunch of display ads. And so we were sort of like, yeah, you guys are, you're a little behind the times brands. Sure. Display ads might form part of what they want to do, but there's this whole other world where brands really need to be. And so I I think that was, you know, a big part of the attraction when, you know, other large, uh, let's call them media companies came looking was that we seem to be doing something different with brands and we were getting a much higher kind of cost per thousand or however you want to measure what revenue you can derive from the eyeballs you're getting, we were doing a much better job than the person next to us. Over six years, KidSpot had proven itself to be the place for community and online connection in Australia, with over 1.3 million unique visitors each month. But just as Katie had appreciated the power of online community building, so too had others, and Facebook was rapidly approaching the 500 million monthly active user milestone. We started to realize that, you know, moms were spending more and more time on Facebook, which believe me, they only have so much time. So it's a zero sum game. So it meant they were spending less time on us. And so we could see that, hey, you know, we were probably at our sexiest point (laughs) as a property. And so the board decided like, hey, maybe we should test the market. So we hired an investment banker who becomes more interesting as we, as we moved to Shipping Easy and that sort of thing. His name is David Gordon. He had this firm called Lexicon Partners. And he's like, here's the approach. Here's how it will work. Here's the timing. And believe me, my next experience was nothing like this. <laughs> so I know it's partly luck. Um, but everything that he said would happen, in ter- including the timing, like this month, this will happen. And then in May, this will happen. And all of it went, I mean, precisely to plan. I probably thought, oh, I'm so clever. You know, this is how you do it. Uh, Thank gosh I did it one more time because I realized, oh gosh, there was so much luck involved in that. So yeah, we ran a formal process recognizing that, hey, there was serious disruption coming. We could see the time spent on site was reducing and we could see that Facebook was starting to be a really popular destination. 
And just as all great founders can identify opportunity, they can also weigh risks and be decisive. And Katie made the call to sell, eventually for over $45 million to News Corp. It was such a great outcome for the shareholders, which was really important because it was the first time that I was the one that had raised capital and I was the one that was ultimately responsible to shareholders. So it felt really good to know that people were getting, you know, multiple times what they put in or whatever. But I think the process in the end, you know, Paul, Matt and Andrew learned this far more than I did. I was truly just an operator in the business, but the, the word tension, like you need tension in a transaction. I had no idea what that meant, but clearly what it means is you don't just want but one buyer. (laughs) So luckily, you know, that's where we ended up as news corp. We'd been talking to for a couple of years. We really knew their corp dev team. Well, we liked them. We knew that that would be a good home for the kids bought property, let's call it, but also the the people, if that's where we ended up. And they were very interested and they made it clear from the beginning that they were going to be there at the end. So we knew that we would have at least one buyer and we ended up with five interested parties. So the process really did. It was good. But what made the process very interesting and added the tension is Lexicon Partners decided that they also wanted to push to see if there could potentially be a buyer. Well, somehow pulled out of their hat, Demand Media. And Demand Media was like the darling in the US at the time, that they were very clever and their company was worth a bomb. And so they came in and decided that they wanted to buy KidSpot. And so one of the other executives, Natalie and I, met in LA where they were, went to their offices and they were like, you know, the true internet vibe. They'd been successful in a different startup in MySpace. You know, they just, I mean, it was just fun. It was like seek. And we were like, wait a minute, we want this. And, you know, they had acquired multiple companies and one was in Austin. They were like, look, Katie, we'd love to get you involved there. I mean, we were like, this would be a great buyer for this business. Well, obviously that's not what happened, but not because they didn't put in an offer. They did, but news just kept beating their offer. And so obviously that's what tension means is, (laughs) you know, instead of just getting the first price that someone offered. And the other thing that demand media was very big on is, we're, we're all entrepreneurs. We hate earnouts. Well, news had an earnout. Well, demand media didn't. And so news took theirs off the table. And so demand media, you know, really became someone that obviously impacted the sales price, but also impacted the terms of the deal. And um, when I had to call the CEO of demand and let him know we were going to go with the other offer, I mean, it was awful. And, um, you know, we were, I don't want to say we were disappointed because news ended up such a great buyer for that business. And in the fullness of time, which wasn't very long, about six months later, Google changed their algorithm. And I mean, I don't want to say the business imploded, but it, it has been challenging ever since for them. So if KidSpot had ended up inside demand media, I don't know where it would be versus KidSpot lives with News Corp. It's in the newspaper each week. I mean, it's on television. I mean, KidSpot is thriving. So I'm very happy with the buyer of that business. Just as she had at Seek. Katie stayed for a year with KidSpot when she'd resigned. And despite saying she was planning to retire, David Gordon, the investment banker who'd smoothly sold KidSpot, appeared with a new startup, Shipping Easy, a software startup that helped companies streamline their logistics setup. David asked if Katie would consider joining the team as an advisor. The team said they needed a steady pair of hands that could help ramp up sales. So Katie agreed to start mentoring the team. David is a very good salesman, I would say. And um, next thing I knew, he was calling me saying like, hey, I've been talking to Mark, who was the founder, and we think we should move the business to Austin and you should be the CEO. And I was like, no, no. And I bet within 24 to 48 hours, 
I started getting the itch. I think it was also, you know, it's partly an identity crisis. If you've, you've kind of been like, I'd been in startups at that stage, you know, I'd done six years at Seek, then I'd done seven years at Kids, but I was 13 years into this, the pace that you're working, the problem solving that you're doing, then it, you just think of the pressure and the, the chaos Well, you get, I mean, I do, you get addicted to that. So all of a sudden I was like, well, what would I do all day? And so anyway, next thing I knew, I agreed to be the CEO for one year. I said, look, I'll do it for a year. And in a year's time, I'll find you someone, but I'll get it set up. Maybe I'll stay on and be your CMO. But I was like, you know, I don't want the pressures of a CEO. That's sort of what I said. And then obviously a year later, everything changed. So it was David that got me involved, you know, about three months after getting me involved. I think we both had our head in our hands and we're like, oh my gosh, what have we, what have we got on our hands? You know, it was going to be a much harder and longer journey than I think either of us anticipated. We both went into it with our eyes wide open, but boy, did we miss some things. And the thing that they'd both missed was that the product wasn't exactly what she thought it was. They had used this Serbian development, you know, agency or whatever, and they built a product and they had, you know, I think they had maybe a hundred customers, which I know sounds like a not, that is nothing. In SMB, you need tens of thousands, especially with the price point we were selling at. So, you know, it was just tiny. And so I guess, you know, one of the learnings for me was sort of the due diligence that I did if anything, before taking on the role, not to mention I invested too. And, you know, what I did was I said, Hey, do you have any, and looking back on this again, you're like, gosh, I would have done it so differently. But I was like, can you just give me a list of the customers in Austin? I'd like to talk to a few. So I found two that would talk to me and I went and met with them in person, which I thought was really good. I asked them to show me how they use shipping easy and they walked me through it. It seemed easy enough. They were both very happy with it. And so obviously, not only did I put money in, but I joined the business and, and did all the things we just talked about. What I didn't understand was how important it was <laughs> to actually watch someone who shipped more than once a day. You can do anything once a day, but when all of a sudden you need to get 10 packages out or 100 or God forbid, 1,000, Shipping Easy could not function like that. It was such an onerous process. So I would just say that when we looked under the hood, there was a, a lot of things that we found, but the most challenging was just that you, you literally could not use the product with any sort of volume. And so what you wanted was customers with volume because they actually have a need for the product. If you're shipping one, I mean, you could just go to the post office. So the very people that we needed to reach, in fact, the solution would never meet their needs. And so the product just fell very short of what it would take to, you know, handle any customer that was a legitimate online seller. So what we looked under the hood and found was, oh my gosh, we have something that we could show someone and convince them to use it. But if they ever used it, they would be frustrated, you know, by the second label that they were trying to print. And though it seemed like an appropriate time to panic, Katie did just the opposite. She started to build a realistic picture of how their software was helping or not helping people ship their packages. So the team was relatively small. It was really, you know, we had four salespeople. I was like, you can't have less than four and put them on phones. It's so hard to be rejected. So as a sales team, who are the ones that found that, hey, we can sell this thing all day long, but the minute they use it, they just call back. So every salesperson would make one sale and then spend a week with the client, you know, screaming at them. So we realized, you know, it was, it was the sales team that recognized like, whew, this is sellable. Like we have a product market fit, but it is not usable. And so the team was small. I bet there was probably eight of us total when we realized, you know, it didn't take three weeks where it was like, listen, okay, the good news is that we, we understand there's actually a market for this product. 
it is a big market. So like a lot of, we can monetize this because we were selling it. What we weren't doing is <laughs> we were just churning everyone. So retention was zero. <laughs> Churn was 100%. And so, you know, the good news was we actually were like, well, if we actually had something that could perform the way that we were selling it, like we've, we've got a winner here. And so that was encouraging. And it was at this point that Katie had a pretty significant decision to make. Rebuild the product or close down the company. I think the difficult part was both for David Gordon and I was that, you know, we had just raised capital. I had fronted the capital raising. I'd only been on board for maybe two weeks and it was not difficult to raise the capital because we had just exited KidSpot. And you can imagine there's KidSpot investors who trust me. Some of them had also invested in Seek. So there was trust, there was credibility, but what there also was, was newfound liquidity. I mean, they wanted a place to park these new funds that they'd won with or whatever. So the capital raising was not difficult. I mean, it was, it was oversubscribed, you know, in one week I flew to Australia, we presented, you know, it was very, you know, easy to raise capital. But now all of a sudden we're like, oh my gosh, the narrative that we use to raise the capital is actually not right. And so David was great. I mean, he's super honest guy. And I just said, oh my gosh, you know, I feel like we should give the money back. You know, it's not what we thought it was, et cetera. And so what we agreed to do, this was in November, I guess, of 2012. We agreed that, well, hey, we still have X money in the bank. Why don't we just, you know, let's contain the, the cost side of this business let's rebuild the product and we just never touch the funds that we raised. And until we launch a revised version of this product, which ended up to be a completely brand new product, we won't touch the capital. And so that's what we agreed to do. And I think we both thought, okay, if we can legitimately do that, neither of us would feel bad about the narrative that we'd kind of sold. And so that's what ended up happening. Uh, we, we hired a, a head of engineering. I, I think he was there for one week and he just said, listen, you know, this is, I mean, you know, I hate to say this in a podcast, but he was like, this is garbage. And so he's like, I'm telling you, it would be so much easier. Scrap it, start over. And so that took about a week to make a decision that, I mean, we barely knew this guy. Barry Cox was his name. I mean, we didn't know him, but, you know, eventually we had someone else come in and take a look at what he proposed and uh, he agreed with him. The shipping easy story ends really well. So though it seems kind of dark right now, within four years, Katie had turned around the company rebuilt the product and done it so successfully that stamps.com, a major international shipping company, acquired the company for over $70 million cash. It was just hard work. I mean, shipping sucks in terms of, you know, it's so critical. And I, they got t-shirts made when we sold the business uh, specifically for me, because I always called it like, listen, this is the ass end of e-commerce. No one cares about it but it's vitally important. You know, people care about their website and, oh my gosh, this is what I've decided to sell and I want to have beautiful images and I need great copy and that's what they care about. And then they sell something, they're like, oh geez, now we have an order. So no one really wants to do the shipping. I mean, no one gets into selling online so they can ship. I'm sure every, if you've ever sold anything on eBay and it sells, you're like, oh crap, now I've got to do something with this. So, you know, we really were the ass end of e-commerce. So there was not a lot of joy. And, you know, it was my first, I had been in online businesses, obviously with Seeking KidSpot. And what I didn't realize is that those weren't software businesses. Shipping Easy was a software business. The engineers really ran the company. So obviously my job was to build revenue and their job was to meet the needs of the market and build the right product. And so, you know, eventually there was a meeting of the minds, but it took us a while to sort of find our rhythm and find our groove. I wasn't used to engineering having such a huge say and the business being so dependent on engineering. And despite her firm belief that logistics was the ass end of e-commerce, when it worked, it really worked. 
I don't know if you've ever heard of LuLaRoe. It's these leggings that became very popular. And it's, I, I don't want to call it a pyramid scheme, but it's a multi-level marketing type business. And some of the consultants started to use Shipping Easy to ship the leggings. And then they literally grew from like 500 consultants to 70,000 in the space of 12 months. And they, I mean, 30,000 of them use Shipping Easy. That was joy because the wins just came versus I feel like the rest of the time we were never the market leader in the space. We fought for every customer we got. We really did. So outside of LuLaRoe, which was, you know, sort of an easier from an acquisition perspective, and we really learned how to just make it dead easy for them to do what they needed to do. Outside of that, which was a small component of the business, it was a slog the entire time. <laughs> and I asked Katie if she was still grateful for the experience. Very. Very, you know, I think that all of a sudden having a network here, it's nice. You know, I actually have a professional network in Austin that I would have never had. And it's broader than Austin, but you know, I, all of my network and contacts and relationships really sat in Australia, despite the fact that I live in Texas, which is sort of inconvenient, just time zone alone. And I also think that stamps coming along and acquiring the business, you know, I have so much regard for their leadership team and their CEO. They really just left us alone. It was such an unusual experience. I, I ended up staying, you know, almost an additional four years or three and a half years after they acquired Shipping Easy, which is not unheard of, but it's definitely unusual. And then I continued to learn so much from them. They left us independent, but I ended up joining the stamps board and, you know, they're publicly listed. I hadn't been on a public board. So, you know, I just kind of feel like, look, for my own growth, there were so many wins, not to mention a financial win, which is always nice. So no, no regrets, but I can tell you the first two years, it was nothing but regret. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it was very hard on everyone around me, but you know, eventually we turned a corner and, you know, we, we had a good win. As Katie and I were talking about her extraordinary journey as an operator and founder across three startups, her lessons are applicable to basically all founders. I've learned, you know, at my age that, you know, the financial part isn't the most important, but that's easier to say after you've had a couple of wins. So let's just start with the critical impact of dilution. <laughs> so that was something I wish I understood. But again, like I said, with KidSpot, it all, it, it all turned out fine. But obviously I just, you know, I didn't really have my head around what it meant to give up 50% of the business, not realizing you might raise capital more times. And so you don't really keep your 50% or whatever. So that's one, which again, it's not the, the biggest learning I had. It's, it's more of a you know, sort of entertaining learning. I think also just the importance of a partner. And so in all these businesses, even if I didn't necessarily end up, you know, with a co-founder type partner, you know, the exec team or the leadership team, there was always at least two people in East each business and in some businesses more where there are so many ups and downs. And as the CEO, your job really is to cheerlead. And so part of that's, of course, it's strategy and vision and all that stuff, but it's picking people up. It's getting them to believe that you're going to get there. It's getting them to believe that in fact, the future that you're painting is worthy of, you know, standing next to you and, and walking alongside and those sort of things. But you know, the cheerleading is exhausting. And so you have the external, the internal. So having a partner where when you're having a down day, they'll be like, we're going to get there. Or when everything sucks from a sales perspective, someone can come and show you a product win. And so I would say that KidSpot started out 
relatively lonely. Eventually, you know, Miffy Cody and Natalie McTeer and Mandy and, and different people joined the business and it got less lonely. But I don't think that I really understood Matt, Paul and Andrew did it right. They had very different personalities. They had overlapping strengths, but also very different strengths. And, you know, they, they had each other as that business went through, because believe me, it wasn't easy there in those initial years either. It seems I'm sure today that Seek is just a huge success story, but there's a lot of, you know, trials and challenges. So I think the importance of a partner and if it's not just to bring skills that you don't have, it's to have someone that's there on the days that you're not so up. So that's a big one. Another thing that I wish I'd known, because I, I think I would have had more empathy and probably apologized a little bit more, is just how hard it is on your family and friends. You, you know, I think building a business takes a fairly obsessive personality. And so you're so busy obsessing over not letting it fail. You're not really even obsessing over success. You're just obsessing over not letting it fail for a really long time in my experience. But you forget how hard it is for the people around you. You know, you're not sleeping. You're constantly getting up at 4 a.m. to just whatever it is, flush out an idea or see if you can push things a little harder, whatever it's going to be. But, you know, all the people around you are so many compromises and sacrifices. So I think as an entrepreneur, I would say today, I didn't really think about that. I just thought, look, I'm busting my ass to make this successful, you know, like regard that <laughs> as opposed to, oh my gosh, like what you guys are putting up, you're getting the leftovers every day because I'm so exhausted, you know, whatever. So I think that's a big one. And the last thing I would say is sort of what a good board acts and looks like. You know, I learned a lot on the KidSpot board. You know, it was a good board. I don't think I really understood how to appoint people. I don't know that we had enough diversity, but it worked out well. And then I would say the Shipping Easy board with David Gordon as the chairman, he was just a phenomenal chairman. And so I think that's something that if I had my time again, I'd say I should have sat down to talk to Paul and said, hey, how did you leverage the board? You know, how did you manage the board? How did you ensure that they really did help you to get a better outcome and not get in your way, but instead, you know, support you along the way? There's so many questions I should have asked him instead. I probably just, you know, bumbled my way through it, like I said. So I do think that's really important. If you're going to have a board, you may as well make it a highly productive, constructive, you know, high achieving board. And I just didn't know to do that versus today. I hope I'm a little better at that. And her advice on how to structure a board is simple, but hard to do. I think board composition is way more important than you know. And so, of course, you know, if you know that the biggest challenge to your business is going to be building revenue and acquisition, for God's sake, have one, someone that has deep expertise in sales and marketing on the board. So I would say board composition, you know, sometimes it comes in phases, like what's most important today? Who would you like to have around the table? I think that's really important. I do think that boards in some instances end up with a lot of people that have invested in the business, but they've not necessarily run a business, that can be really taxing and difficult on a CEO because they're the only person that truly has been an operator. And so I think it's important to get operators on your board. <laughs> when you're not in the business, it always seems so much easier than when you're the one that actually has to front the people or make the hard call or whatever it's going to be. And then I think there's obviously an art to board reporting. I think thinking that through and thinking about how do I want to share information? Where do I want the boundaries to be? You can overshare. And then the next thing you know, the board's all in your business. And so if you want them in your business, overshare. If it's not the role that you want the board to play, don't give them so much information. It's important, again, for founders to think through like, hey, reporting to the board and managing the information flow is important, but deciding how active or not active you want them to be in different parts of your business, you control a lot of that. And some people, I think, you know, think, oh, I'll just, I'll send them everything. Well, you are opening the door for a very active board and things that your exec team could probably handle and would probably prefer to handle. 
After seven years at Shipping Easy, in April 2019, Katie handed over the reins of Shipping Easy and stepped onto the board of Stamps, the parent company. And more than anything, she's loved working with Mark, the Stamps CEO. She's also stepped onto the board of Rocked, another portfolio company at Square Peg, which marks an exciting moment for us as a fund too. Now that she's in the world of being a board director and not an operator, her friends still joke that she'll be tempted back at some stage. Five months into my retirement, I would just say, you know, I really feel like I was right this time. And people always say, I know you're going to do another one. I am like, I, you, can, you can mark my words, I am not going to do another one. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I, I think I've done that. that. That phase of my career is over. It doesn't mean I don't have more things in front of me, but it really was time to leave in this, you know, in that sense. That's it for our conversation with Katie May. You can read more about Katie, about Stamps and Rocked online, and I'll pop their links into the description too. This week marks a big milestone for us too, because not only is today our 10th episode, but this week I also get to thank Rami Sher, our new podcast producer. Rami is studying at Afters, the very prestigious Australian film, television and radio school, and she brings such professionalism to her work, so prepare for these episodes to get so much better. Thanks as always to you for tuning in, and if you did like today's episode and you haven't left a rating or review, please do so. I read and cherish every single one. We'll see you next week.